0: On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture.
1: Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod.
0: and welcome back to Art of Darkness. This is a special Dark Room episode where we we go back, we revisit an episode we've done before, we bring in uh, some help uh, to uh, kind of talk about maybe what we got wrong, maybe dig into some stuff we, we didn't have time for, we glossed over. Um, and yes, folks- it, it is so hard to find good help these days. <laughs> it is not, because we have <laughs> two two fabulous guests with us today it's not that hard to find to find help um <laughs> but before we get into that i guess just a general kind of like you know support the show sort of thing uh of course you can find us on twitter all at all times 24 7 hit me up on twitter uh art of dark pod um what is the support kevin patreon.com slash art of dark pod That's it. it That's where we
1: ask for your support. You can also send us funny internet money at artofdarkpod.com slash support. Please send everything to the moon. Uh, Beyond that, we also started a new Telegram channel, which you can get at t.me slash artofdarkpod. We're starting to chat in there, so if you want to torture us uh, online, that might be a better way to do it than yes, Twitter. Yeah,
0: yeah mm-hmm. shouts out to the Telegram folks. It's kind of fun already. So yeah, we're yeah. spilling some secrets and pulling the mm. curtain back a little bit on there, so that's kind of cool. Um, sure. So today, we're going to talk uh, shortly now after the Ulysses <laughs> centenary uh, We are going to dig back into James Joyce, assisted by none other than Aldous Asterian, who was on the original episode, for folks who who, uh, haven't checked that out, Um, the creator and mastermind behind Forest of Symbols. I I, I suppose you'd call Forest of Symbols a podcast because you get it where you get podcasts, but I I think of it as, uh, I don't even know what to call it, but 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 he's the man, uh, and 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 Internet Joyce, we were laughing kind of beforehand, calling ourselves Joyce experts. I'm not a Joyce expert, that's for sure. Um, I don't know if Aldus would consider himself one, but no, uh. just
2: enthusiasts. <laughs> enthusiasts.
0: Okay, there we go. Wow. We could be Joyce enthusiasts. That's okay. <laughs> I think Joyce himself would sneer at expertise a little bit, anyway. So, so yeah. it's probably all. Okay. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh,
1: there are no experts. That's right. That, that's, that's, right. that's over. Yeah, yeah. experts but, yeah. are
0: over, folks.
2: So I'm everybody sorry. listen
0: to Forest of Symbols. Yeah. Yes. 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 Right. Please, please do listen. Listen to the Forest of Symbols. It's incredible. Recent episode. Uh, go through the whole thing. It's fantastic. He's doing these wonderful intellectual inquiries, making connections between things that I didn't even, wouldn't have even considered and doing it in his, his well-read uh, dulcet tone. So it's, it's a fantastic show. I can't recommend it enough.
1: I'm going to use the GRE word, erudite. It is erudite. Mm. Learned. Yeah. Learned.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: How often do yeah. I get to whip that one out? Once a decade or so. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Now, now I've, I've dipped into my GRE stash and now it's over.
0: <laughs> now we're also joined by a friend of the show, Aaron Gwyn. Aaron Gwynn was with us uh, when we talked about Faulkner, um, which feels like a long time ago now. But you know, several months back, we had a, a Faulkner episode. Um, Aaron Gwynn is a acclaimed novelist, uh, the author of several books, including Dog on the Cross, Winds War, uh, most recently All God's Children, which has officially been longlisted for the Dublin Literary Award. Is that right, Aaron?
3: Yeah, the yeah. I think so. it used to be the. Dublin Impact Award okay. now it's the International Dublin Literary Award I realized that there's a sort of Irish connection now because of this. Yeah,
0: yeah, well yeah, congratu- congratulations on that. Thank you man, I mean, well, well man thank you. Thank yeah, you it's dude, awesome. thank you. It's a great Appreciate book. it. And everybody check it out. He's also he's also a professor of uh teaches writing and literature at uh UNC Charlotte. So so he's got he's got some standing in this area uh, more than some. So uh, between Kevin and I, kind of uh, picking our noses and staring at the wall, and these two guys, I think we're going to be able to uh, get. <laughs> I think we're going to be able to get somewhere on Joyce.
1: Well, um, and to be clear, we we do do not hold his uh, professor status against Aaron. Number no. one, Thank number two, goodness, yeah, man. right, yeah. Number two, <laughs> Aaron, you you teach whole courses on. Joyce is that correct I taught yeah I taught a Ulysses seminar a few years
3: ago at the undergraduate level which was uh, interesting like it's (laughs) they got they got way more than I thought they'd get and so like the things that I expected them not to get they got and the things I didn't things I thought oh well this they'll totally get in on this they weren't into that at all
0: interesting Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. Well, this kind of ties into a kind of a question I've got here to to ask you is like, um, I know why I want to read Ulysses um, because I want to be erudite, right? And and I and I love this kind of stuff. But why? And I'm asking this almost as a devil's advocate kind of thing, Aaron. Why is James Joyce still relevant? Well, I think. I think it has to do first for
3: technical and formal reasons. That'd be my answer. So technical and formal on one hand and um, his influence on the artistic left on the other, which I would say uh, political and social reasons. At one time, you know, Joyce was the um, one of the banner men for um, the, the left in continental Europe. Um, and then was one of the bannermen and a representative of the avant-garde, um, not only in continental Europe, but in the United States. You, know, I, you mentioned mm. this on, uh, on the uh, original episode with Aldous. Um, mm. There was a time when owning a copy of Ulysses in America itself was a political act and, and, a, and serious cool credibility. So I think all of that. This is why Marilyn
0: Monroe wanted to be photographed holding it. Absolutely. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're, I mean, that's a hip thing to do Mm -hmm. and it was originally a hip thing to do because it was a dirty thing to do and a banned thing to do. Right. 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 Right? Nothing, nothing draws eyes and ears and attention like banning something. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so the post office, the United States post office here in America, and then, I believe a counterpart of it in Great Britain or their version of it, um, you know, seized the first shipments of Ulysses from um, Shakespeare and Company and destroyed them. And then people began to smuggle them into the United States, including Ernest Hemingway. People began to pirate
1: them, uh, too, right? Pirate
3: them. Yes, Samuel Roth, right? You mentioned this on the podcast. So Roth earns. Like, he gets rich. Can you imagine this, right? He gets rich off pirating a literary novel. Oh, can, you, can you imagine, right. Right? right? Can you imagine what it would take to get people, <laughs> to get people interested in even looking yeah. at a literary novel, much right. less yeah. right, buying a bootleg copy?
0: Yeah, you can't even get rich if you yeah it, you can't even get rich if you own a bookstore selling no. like you, <laughs> no there's no money to be made in that there's no anymore yeah yeah early
2: 20th century is a completely different world now oh my gosh mm-hmm. Man. Mm-hmm. and this yeah. is
3: like we i'd realize right that this is the centennial too for ulysses yeah. we're talking about exactly a hundred years ago no
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah. yeah he was a hundred he'd be in and he was a on his 140th birthday uh, it is the centen- It was the centenary on February February second, right, or February first? February second. That's February right. Yeah, 2nd. yeah, 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 And sort of a, kind of a big deal. We kind of put that episode out, and I wasn't even really thinking about it being a hundred years coming up. And you know, it was just sort of something we wanted to do. And then and then it seemed like Twitter was alive with Joyce stuff. But then again, you know it's so strange to be on the internet now because now to me it seems like well everybody's talking about Joyce but I'm sure if I got on you know my neighbor's Twitter account (laughs) there's no not Joyce is not to be mentioned anywhere but um yeah so what a hundred years has passed we still have Joyce we still have Ulysses we still have Finnegan's Wake Aaron you're talking about your students sort of picking it up uh, you know Mm -hmm. teaching it to undergrads which I find interesting yep oof do they like it no they don't like it but they (laughs) they don't they don't like it but
3: they enjoy they enjoy having read it the way people like in you know uh, that the trenches of World War one came out mm-hmm. on the other side, and like, yeah, we really went through it, and we bonded and all that kind of stuff yeah. so they 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 enjoyed the 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 slog after it was over, and they felt like i've heard them i've heard like they felt a sense of like, oh yeah, I did something, I read this Man. really hard book, so yeah. It's weird. Right. It's Cause on one hand they didn't enjoy it and they wanted to complain, but then they realized they took a class. They enrolled in an elective called James
1: Joyce's Ulysses.
0: So. Right. They did it's, uh, it's on you. It's on you, <laughs> it's, man. I, I,
1: you I have to this. let the vampire in. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I, I took a Joyce
2: class in, as an undergraduate and I did this because, I mean, I was already a Joyce reader, but it was, Dubliners and Portrait at the time were the ones I read, and it. I, I made a one attempt to read Ulysses, and I, I didn't. I wasn't able to get all the way through. It was just too challenging, and uh, I, you know, I took the class, and uh, honestly, finishing that Molly Bloom soliloquy at the end, sitting in the, you know, in the depths of the the college library, uh, is probably one of the most memorable reading experiences I've ever mm-hmm. had. Just getting to the, you know, that that end of it and uh, even though I did enjoy the book you know admittedly one of the great you know pleasures of reading this book is the fact that you're able to do it Mm -hmm. I mean the difficulty is part of the experience
0: that's right yeah and you can't and and you do realize I think in the difficulty of reading it is you can't you you do have to work for it but if you Try to take the attitude that oh i'm not going to let a sentence pass on un- misunderstood or ununderstood. you will never get through it right so there's a, oh, there's no. a yeah. yeah there's an element of kind of picking your battles you don't want to just let the whole thing go one in one ear and out the other but but yeah but that's you, a, you could spend that's your a whole life reading it. yeah that's that, that's like a skill that you have to develop is the
2: the tolerance of you know, holding some of these things in your head without going, I, I don't really know what's going on yet, but you know, mm-hmm. the picture's going to get gradually clearer as I go back over this yeah. stuff. And a lot of people don't like that, mm-hmm. but I think that, I think that people, you know, need to get more ambitious as readers, not just as writers. Yeah. Yeah. No, There's, I think
0: that's true. I I, I know it's one of a handful of books that's helped me with that sort of negative capability kind of thing where I'm like more comfortable with just not, With ambiguity and not really understanding exactly what's going on, it's a it's a it's helpful overall. Because right, you know, it's it's it it it, Ulysses feels more like the world I live in in terms of being on the internet, being in in grace, you know, immersed in a self perpetuating algorithm of information. It feels like a little like Ulysses, just like going onto the internet. (laughs)
3: <laughs> there's, a, there's a great uh, essay, a piece of literary criticism, which also happens to be useful and accurate, which is a rare achievement for a work of literary criticism. Oh, sure. By, by Joseph Frank, called Spatial Form and Modern Fiction. It is, it's mm. probably online somewhere. It's often anthologized. And it has a really useful thing to say about Ulysses and the novels influenced by Ulysses. And Frank says, you can't really read Ulysses. You can only reread Ulysses, right? So <laughs> I like the, first time, yeah. right, the first time you read it, Joyce will reverse the order of narrative cues. So as opposed to the way a way more conventional fiction writer like myself approaches it, or even an exp- a more experimental fiction writer like Brad approaches novel writing, um, you still, in something like House of Sleep, you prepare the reader for a narrative move or introducing a character or an object, uh, a prop. Joyce does it the opposite way. Mm-hmm. He, he shows you the character, uh, the prop comes in, Bloom will reference something in his head, mm-hmm. and then later on, maybe 20 pages later, you will have context for this, mm. right? And, mm-hmm. and that gives us the sense of readers, often the sense of a swimming and this bafflement of information, some of which is familiar to you, some of which is, is obscure. Mm-hmm. Um, when you reread Ulysses, you realize, oh my gosh, that's the first time that the soap actually comes up. Oh, that's the first <laughs> reference to blazes boiling. Oh, that's the first reference to Rudy before right. we've been explained who Bloom's, uh, you know, dead child is. right? Yeah. So he, And then the first
0: he, read, it can just be a wash of
3: stuff that you, you don't, don't quite, know what yeah. Rudy is. Rudy. Right. I mean, you don't even know, you don't know what all this stuff is and mm-hmm. uh, a more conventional writer like myself would would structure that in such a way that you're giving the breadcrumbs before you give the appetizer, before you give the entree. But mm-hmm. but, he's, but Frank, in a really helpful way, talks about what Joyce does, why Joyce does what he does, and the effect that that produces on the reader. That's a great, great essay if you're interested <laughs> in approaching this book within a new mindset and kind of looking behind the curtain of Joyce's technique, spatial form in modern fiction, Joseph Frank.
0: Okay. Yeah, no, I will will certainly check that out.
1: Allow me to interject here. This talk has reminded me of something that Gurdjieff said about his own Mm -hmm. writing. And Gurdjieff, of course, we've done on another episode of uh, Art of Darkness, artofdarkpod.com. Gurdjieff advised, and of course, uh, Joyce was uh, uh, supremely superior as a writer to Gurdjieff. It's not even uh, a question, but Gurdjieff did, did say that his work was meant to be read three times. And here's what he said. <laughs> Once, as one is mechanized to read books and newspapers. Ooh. Wow. Right. Feed it Two. into the
0: machine of your brain. Yes, yeah. put it
1: into the machine of the brain. Two, you know. as though reading aloud to another. Uh-huh. <laughs> and three, to fathom the gist. And I, I think that's probably not a bad way to approach Joyce. Yeah, fathom yeah. the
2: gist sounds like a Joycean phrase already. It, it does. really does. It really <laughs> does. <laughs> yeah, fathom yeah. Gather the
1: gist.
0: your, a- gather your fist and fathom your gist. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, percent. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> so back to real quick. Uh, I I don't want to give a non-answer to Brad's question. No, is what is Ulysses still relevant? I think it's relevant. Why it's relevant right now is for both. Uh, Joyce's formal innovations, and the fact that fiction writers have not allowed the literary establishment and the app- publishing apparatus to forget—okay, these techniques that Faulkner used to great effect, these techniques that all these fiction writers, Cormac McCarthy, for instance, mm-hmm. used to great effect—came from this one book, *Ulysses*, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and we are in his debt. I mean. 1925. Mrs. Dalloway, uh, Virginia Woolf had read Ulysses and been grossed out by it. She didn't like. <laughs> she didn't like the body stuff, right? She right. didn't like Bloom right. on the toilet. She was offended by it. And yep. Elliot argued with her. He said, "No, this is a great book. You need to like. You need to give this another go." So she gave it another go. She still didn't like it, but she appreciated the stream of consciousness technique. She comes back at Elliot and says, "Okay, that's not the way." I like what Joyce is doing in some ways that's not the way the human mind works. And Elliot said, how does the human mind work? And she thought, Hmm. And <laughs> then she wrote Mrs. Dalloway to, <laughs> to show how she believed right. the human mind works, which is a, which is what a genius does when encountering a great work of art, yeah. you wrestle with it, right? You wrestle right. with it, right? Wolf yeah. wrestled with this thing and she decided, no, I don't like what he does but I'm also a genius and here's how you do
0: it. And she creates, she creates a
3: masterpiece in her own right. A much sure. more
0: accessible masterpiece, yeah. but uh, Mrs. Dalloway is a fantastic oh, book. it's No, it's top. It's yeah, it's top shelf. They're on the same shelf and it's the top yep. one for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it is interesting. I do love this, this thing that's going on in modernism of like, we're going to try to, we're trying to, because even now you, I, I pay attention to a fair amount of the, the science on consciousness, you know, I mm. kind of a pop sci level. Mm. And it's, it's constantly about, well, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, you can't, you can't prove or disprove anything. We can't learn anything about other people's consciousnesses. Right. And so it's this thing that's outside of the reach of, of science. Mm-hmm. But, but you've here, you've got a 100 years ago, you've got James Joyce and Virginia Woolf two two geniuses sorting it out amongst themselves and you know nary a test tube or a microscope to be found and yet i think a lot of ground made in trying to understand what it is to be conscious in a a real way and it's just way messier than anybody who's doing consciousness studies is sort of going to be willing to accept i think Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at the
2: very least you have a portrait an accurate portrait of james joyce's mind right Mm-hmm. Right, right. It, I, I, it is an eccentric mind, without a doubt. <laughs> yeah, but it's mm-hmm. also a mind that contains a vast amount of literature and philosophy,
0: right. you know right. Yeah right yeah, the amount of uh, yeah, the amount of reading he must have done to come up with, come up with any of that. I wanted to, Aaron, I wanted to there's this, this uh, uh, in doing a little bit of research today, The Guardian reprinted their review of Ulysses when it came out. Oh, wow. In 1922. And I'm just going to read the last paragraph because it kind of ties into what you were talking about a little bit. Um, So this is from The Guardian. I don't know. They didn't have the name of the actual author. So I don't know if it was like one of those from the editorial board kind of things. Um, But this is the very end of the review. And it's a glowing review. (laughs) Um, There are comic and sublime contrasts in Ulysses. The irrelevance and irreverence of the attitude of mankind before the great facts are remorselessly laid bare gross animality and subtle spirituality intermingle blasphemy and beauty poetry and piggishness jostle each other but Mm -hmm. on the whole one becomes tired of beastliness always breaking in there's one chapter devoted to the reverie of a woman and her monologue interior is i imagine and am bound in all honesty to say the vilest according to ordinary standards in all literature (laughs) and yet it's very obscenity is somehow beautiful and rings the soul to pity uh isn't that is that not high art i cannot however believe that sex plays such a preponderant part in life as mr joyce represents wow He he may aim at putting everything in but he has of course like everybody else selected carefully what he puts in has he not exaggerated the vulgarity and magnified the madness of mankind and the mysterious materiality of the universe (laughs) <laughs> interesting and, and there's a lot going on in that last paragraph and then i, I was reading that and i got to think about it because i was interested in this question of uh, like i asked you aaron you know why is this relevant why is everybody excited about this mm-hmm. and i understand somewhat what it means to me but i look at this and i think man is anybody working in the novel form right now that would elicit a paragraph like this in their review no I don't think there really is, nope. right? Nope. It, it's, nope. it's, it's like Ulysses kicked so many things apart and rebuilt so many things that, that we're all sort of in, in his wake a little bit. I agree. Yeah. I agree.
3: Um, and I also think, I, I believe the best fiction that's ever been written is being written right now. I would have said that stronger in, in and stronger tone when... Um, both Dennis Johnson and Philip Roth were still alive a few years ago, yeah. um, and Toni Morrison and mm-hmm. uh, Saul Bellow. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, I've said that more recently, and it's been truer than it is now. However, yeah. no one has, since Ulysses, to my mind, written that book that quite explodes everything in the most artful of ways. Probably the closest I can think of is Nabokov's Lolita or Pale Fire or Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow which is a very challenging book and it has merits it's not to my taste but I recognize its achievement um, but, but that they don't really touch
0: what <laughs> Ulysses did yeah I should say yeah it seems like Gravity's Rainbow is is maybe the 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 closest, uh, yeah, it's the it's the thing that tried as much to be like Ulysses and got as close to succeeding as as sort of out there. But there's an element of of everything. What is that? What do they say? There's a sort of a saying about the study of philosophy that it's hey, it's all just footnotes to Plato anyway, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Right? right? I feel like there's a little bit of that in Joyce too. It's all kind of footnotes to Joyce at this point.
3: Yeah, I reread it this summer. I'd been away from the book for a long time and I reread it this summer and I was um, delighted by uh, chapters that I can remember being quite indifferent to. Hmm. And I was not impressed or sometimes irritated by some of the more, um, well, I'll just say some of the chapters that struck me on this reading, I'm not saying they are this way, struck me on this reading uh, as being kind of gimmicky. Like I, hmm. I used to love the Cyclops chapter, chapter 12 at the mm-hmm. pub with the citizen. And I mm-hmm. loved all the, the pastiches of all these different literary voices. Ditto Oxen of the Sun does a similar thing. Cyclops does it with Gigantism. And mm-hmm. I remember being an undergrad and reading that and of course struggling and, you know, having two books of annotations and working through all this stuff. And then once I came out the other side, I probably felt a lot on my grad students like, oh, I really went through something. And yeah. and, and I also invested energy, right? That you don't want to think, oh, that was for nothing. You want to think, I did, a, <laughs> I did something very hard. So that must have been significant. Must have been worth well, it, yeah. I was bowled over the summer by Nestor, which is the second chapter. And it's a very straightforward chapter by the books, by the book standards in which Stephen tries to teach um, a class to, Mm -hmm. you know, partially unruly uh, private school students. Oh yeah, that, that, that,
0: that, that that chapter is a masterpiece of reasonably straightforward writing. I
3: I thought it was fantastic. I, I read, and I read for the first time, um, The Little Review, Ulysses, which so the Ulysses as it first appeared in magazine, in the magazine, the Little Review, and uh, you know serialized, right, right. And what is amazing to me is that okay, it's like the a compressed trellis of the chapter, of the chapters of Ulysses appear almost unchanged in the Little Review except they're they're truncated, right? Hmm. And so Joyce didn't go in, for the most part, and overhaul the entire chapter. Oh he just added stuff. (laughs) But he added, like, little fragments bit (laughs) by bit by bit. And it was that process of accretion that created this behemoth. Joyce wrote, this is insane to me, Joyce wrote a fifth of Ulysses on the galleys of the... Of the of the novel manuscript, so they sent him to Galley's. If you see any typos, Jim, do mm. circle those. He <laughs> wrote right
0: on the like, in the margins in the in the, the margins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I
3: mean, we, can you imagine what a copy not copy, What your editor would right. do to you? What a publisher right. would do?
0: Right, right, yeah. yeah that's not going to fly. Well, and this is the thing that suggests to me that that Ulysses isn't even uh, Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake. You get follow me here for a second they're not even done yet they just they just froze framed James Joyce's process at a certain point and put that on paper right they're they're still sort of going if James Joyce was alive they would still be they would still be occurring right there would be new additions yeah there's a
2: there's a cool um, little passage in Anthony Burgess's Rejoice um, book which I I recommend to anybody as a really accessible general introduction to Joyce. Um, Anybody Mm. could read that book. It's not a, and and yet there's some good criticism and scholarship in it too, but um, in the part where he's talking about Finnegan's Wake, he actually does reproduce um, iterations of sentences in how Joyce developed Finnegan's Wake from the simplest to each, you know, where he's layering on ideas and associations with the words and the words become, start to become more, you know, blurry and sort of packed in and with different things and sort of ambiguous, um, you know, what all the associations of all the words were. And yeah, you get this idea and it does grow like, like you know, like you were saying, like a vine on a trellis mm-hmm. and you get the idea that it could, could have just kept going like that. Mm-hmm. And so there is this weird sense of um, something that's in the process of developing a real organic
0: quality to his right, work, right? Right. Yeah, like you could oh, yeah. Yeah, there's almost I had just like a science fiction idea of of, of, of training an algorithm to to enact Joyce's process and then just letting it run on you Uli- the book the manuscript of Ulysses, right? Forever. <laughs> I had um, this
3: dream. I had this dream, right? <laughs> where like I all of my favorite films that I've purchased on iTunes, Mm -hmm. I go rewatch them and I find out that Joel and Ethan Cohen or Martin Scorsese or whoever, right? Has Mm -hmm. snuck in and added new scenes that I've never (laughs) seen before. Like an updated the whole thing. Like I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the, that's the scene in taxi driver (laughs) we never got to see. And it's not like old footage. Like he's like, Written and it's and it's an evolving, growing thing, and I'm rewatching all my favorite movies, and they're new again, right? And mm-hmm. so I wonder, I wonder if if Joyce, you know, had lived to be 150 or whatever, mm-hmm. would he would you know would there be like okay, the 12th edition of
0: you know Ulysses yeah. the.
3: 51st edition of Finnegan's Wake.
0: Right, the... right, right. It's constantly just constantly new, you know, at the syllable level, things being sort of added and, and taken well, away. You know, um, you could categorize modern fiction
2: as there being two kinds of writers. There's the people who do their best to cut things out and who people who add things on, you know, mm-hmm. the maximalist and the minimalist. I mean, mm-hmm. my, for my money, my two favorite writers of the modern era are Joyce and Borges and those, they, those are the two ends of the spectrum right there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like if you're interested in the maximalist novel, another one to throw in there is Infinite Jest by mm-hmm. David Foster Wallace you know, though
0: the, the, all those steps go back to Joyce. So yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. I I don't know. Yeah. Was there something, uh, this maybe sounds stupid, but, but now I'm thinking about, it, I can't really think of an example. Was there, are there big examples of maximalist novels pre Joyce? Uh, I suppose there's, there's Moby Dick. um, There's, there's there's a lot of big books. There's a lot of, I'm actually reading one right now that I, I just realized is, Took completely,
2: you know, a uh, path that leads up to Joyce, and that's Rabelais.
0: Mm. Okay, I was thinking mm. about Rabelais, which I've never read, but I'm sort of glancingly yeah. familiar with. Right yeah. in the middle of that now, it's a, it's a mm. crazy book, yeah. mm. and, and also like in parts, just about
2: as obscene as Ulysses too.
0: So, yeah. mm. oh, really? Okay, yeah. okay. On this note, so uh, the great Blowergeist, uh, friend of the show, and and great Twitter follow. Um, he had posted this snippet of an interview with Don DeLillo that I found (laughs) fascinating. I I think we can think about this for a minute. And then I want to talk about Vico. Um, But, okay, so in 1988, Libra had just come out. I, most of us have probably read that, I think. It's, mm-hmm. it's, great it's, book. It's a great novel. Um, Don DeLillo tells more about, uh, in this interview with somebody named Curtis. I'm not sure who this is, but it doesn't really matter, about imagining the Warren Commission report as a novel by James Joyce. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, DeCurtis says, at one point, you described the Warren Commission report, which is 26 volumes long, as the novel that James Joyce might have written if he had moved to Iowa Iowa City and lived to be 100 years old.
3: (laughs) And gotten a red pill.
0: Right, right, right. right, Here's DeLillo. Um, I asked myself what Joyce could possibly do after Finnegan's Wake, and this was the answer. It's an amazing document, the Warren Commission Report. The first 15 volumes are devoted to testimony and the last 11 volumes to exhibits. And together we have a masterwork of trivia ranging from Jack Ruby's mother's dental records to photographs of knotted string. What was valuable to me most uh, most specifically was the testimony of dozens and dozens of people who talk not only about their connection to the assassination itself, but about their jobs, their marriage, their children. This testimony provided an extraordinary window on life in the '50s and '60s, and beyond that, gave me a sense of people's speech patterns. Whether they were private detectives from New Orleans or railroad workers from Worth, I'm sure that what those um, I'm sure that without those 26 volumes, I would have written a very different novel than Libra, and probably a much less interesting one. Wow. So it <laughs> I just thought that was interesting. Polling James Joyce into the future, and then I haven't read the Warren Commission report exactly, but I did read the 9/11 Commission report. Brad, you're slipping. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm slipping. <laughs> yeah, I have Bre- read F- Can we just say it? Brad's greatest work con- of fiction Brad's in the 20th been <laughs> Brad's
1: been compromised. Brad's been compromised. I am devastated to learn this,
0: Brad. <laughs> but you, you, you were saying you you, you read the 9/11. Report. Well, I did read the 9/11 Commission report, and and, and it was. It, they're, they didn't. It didn't go into this depth because it's it's a single volume. But but there is a um, there is a strange flattening of a hugely significant event by reading this report. You know, it's just pages mm. on pages of of processing. You know, bureaucratic documentation. And you're like, wait, That's didn't a bunch of stuff blow up in the middle of this? Like, how is this? <laughs> well, <laughs> it, Get it, to that part. The Warren yeah. Report tells us the same lesson as
3: Ulysses. Like, it's mm. really writing is all about revision. Because I read the mm-hmm. first draft of the Warren Report. It says Kennedy was killed by a drunk driver. So, I mean, it's <laughs> <Does> really <laughs> all about how you unfold the tapestry.
2: And, and it ends with Oswald, with his manlicher carcano, saying, "Yes, I will." Yes. So, is that right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> too soon guys too soon that's great, that's, soon. great. that's great <laughs> and his heart was oh. going like mad <laughs> yeah yeah so so okay so i just think that's kind of interesting to think about joyce is, is this kind of maximalist where it's like nothing is not worthy of attention right he he, ha- he he was i think there's something about seeing the reality reality is fractal in a way that everything is kind of represented in everything else um, now, in my mind, if Ulysses is still relevant, if Finnegan's Wake, we're going to talk about it more in the After Dark, if Finnegan's mm-hmm. Wake is the Philosopher's Stone, Giambattista uh, Vico's work, which is so influential on Joyce, has to also be relevant still, right? Somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and all this, I know, and I don't mean to put you in a hot seat exactly here, because I've been leafing through the new science, but I know you've kind of read a, a bit of it. Um, can you give us like a thirty thousand foot view about Vico and the new science? Sure. Yeah. um and it i i've heard the whole thing um okay it's been a while, but it's been a while and i'm actually
2: on the verge of uh of rereading it uh, okay to te- to tease a little bit it is for a future forest of symbols
0: episode excellent well i'm interested in a
2: particular element of it so um but um so and there's a lot going on but what joyce adapts is essentially vico's cycle right and Vico kind of inaugurates um, a a resurgence of cyclical theorists of history you know and later you get Spangler and um, Arnold Toynbee Um, but Vico is interesting because historically he's situated right at this point of early modernity before the like disciplines have kind of congealed where you've got sociology and Mm -hmm. economics and history and all these things but those didn't quite exist in the same way, those disciplines. And so he's kind of doing all this stuff and like mythology is in there and stuff, but, um, he, he lays out, um, a, a pattern, which he calls a, a universal history, uh, a universal ideal history, um, that civilizations tend to go through that involve, an uh, a, a age of gods or a religious theocratic age, an age of heroes, um, an age of men, which is a, a, an age of popular democracy, and um, and then um, it returns. And what he there's a, what he calls the um, the, the recorso. Mm-hmm. And so Joyce adapts this, and you get the recor. So um, Finnegans Wake begins with the recorso, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And and uh, a commodious ficus of recirculation is is right in the very first sentence there. Right. And um, so uh, he actually, if you you believe, um, you know, many critics, and I think Joseph Campbell started this in the skeleton key, um, where Vico uh, has three stages. Um, Joyce essentially makes it four. And the fourth is he takes the recurso and and makes like a kind of, uh, you know, a a sort of dissolving and returning uh, stage there. Um, but what's interesting is to me is that um, each of those stages involves um, a change in the rhetorical styles and the styles of, of language. Where um, the earliest phase of history has um, essentially, I, I believe, he calls it a hieroglyph- hier- hieroglyphic form of language, where the words are are things, mm. right? And then we move to metaphor and metonymy and then finally to irony in the final stage. And so- um, Which is what we're, we're in now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we okay. are. Yeah. Um, we maybe even be in a kind of a recorso. I mean, you know that- I agree. Were- the word return is a very popular word right That's now.
0: It's true. Yeah. There is so, a clamoring for, can you just make things mean things again? Yeah. Return there's,
2: there's,
1: to
0: wood. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> I want hard wood. Yep. We, yep.
3: we exist in the Vikian thunderclap right now. I, exactly. I firmly believe this. This Interesting. is, you know, in, in the Vico uh, and his cosmography um, and his cosmology, uh, the Recorso, it is sort of like
2: Ragnarok,
3: right? It, it completely destroys so something new can flourish because it's, it's like, I can't say it better than all of It's sudden. It's yeah. this, well, it's cyclic, but it's, mm-hmm. it's not a cycle like, it's not a cycle, I'm trying to get like a pillar, right? If you were to look from the top down you would mm-hmm. see a circle, but if you look from the side, you would see a funnel. Right. Okay. Yeah, right? So okay. you have, as as I'll just just said, right? Theocracy, aristocracy, democracy, recorso. But then in the next circling, the time speeds up mm-hmm. and you go you go tighter in on the funnel. Mm-hmm. And then you have theocracy, aristocracy, democracy, recorso. And it's then it's
0: happening, it's happening. Like very rapidly,
3: more and more and more rapidly because it's a funnel, it's a drain, Mm -hmm. right? And that's the that's the that's the the Vikian thing that's that's really always struck me that it's it's hopeful in the sense because there's repetition, it Mm -hmm. is uh it's not hopeful in the sense that um that things are happening more and more quickly and soon there'll be a straight line. And what I fear. With our present cultural moment is things are happening so rapidly that we have uh, theocracy, aristocracy, democracy, and recourse so all at once. Yeah, just they're just happening all things all at once.
0: The cycle so fast that they're basically on top of each other. Yeah. idiot, yeah. Yes. Idiocracy. yes. Idiocracy. Yeah, it's noise. like you know yeah. noise Vico- Yeah. Vico,
1: yeah. Vico- <laughs> go burr, right? Yeah, yeah. See this <laughs> <laughs> Well and this is this is Nietzsche's twilight of, of the gods too correct That's right. twilight of the Gods. yep, yep. Yeah. yep. So
0: i think this and, is i think this is actually really well um well articulated uh, fairly recently by um there's this great documentary about Alan Moore the, the comic <laughs> book artist um who's a, who's a brilliant guy um and he's talking about how our culture has become has is turning into steam essentially <laughs> Um, and, and, and this sort of lines up with, with some things Terrence McKenna was talking about in terms of the, uh, uh, the oh, what is it called? Anyway, I can't remember. The term will come back to me. But what he was basically saying is, is, is we're processing so much information now uh, that you know in the span of a day, humanity will generate as much information as maybe it used to take us a thousand years to generate, just in terms of raw data. And that process... Is speeds up things up to the point that we're completely destabilized, and he describes this as, as turning into a culture of steam, where basically it, the perception is that nothing is actually true or ascertainable, or or um, nothing can be pinned down long enough to actually understand it before things have changed already. And it's the sense of it is that reality itself is falling apart, right? Terrifying. Yeah, right. terrifying. Right. It's also what
3: you know, what literary critics call postmodernism.
0: I mean, that's yeah, a, right. Yeah, mean, no, you, no. you
3: kind of gave a definition of postmodernism.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think yeah, and and it's interesting. So Vico is Vico is is at least articulating the pattern of this back in the when was when was the New Science written in the 1600s or the the 1500s 1700s 1700s <clears throat> Yeah. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Did I get
0: that I think wrong? it, yeah, early 1700s. Okay, okay. I think. Yeah, which yeah, is, it oh, might as well be a million years ago at this point, it feels like. Um, no, so that's re- that's really interesting. And so it's funny that, that, that you wonder now if there's going to be something of a Vico resurgence. Like, mm-hmm. is this going to start, uh, you know, because these thinkers of old periodically kind of come back into fashion as... Their ideas resonate with a moment, and so it makes you kind of wonder: is mm-hmm. is the new science gonna gonna start making sense to people here pretty soon? I maybe think so. Maybe the next force of Symbols episode is gonna kick off that revival. Well, once you know, there's a <laughs> and quite possibly, but uh,
2: you know, as it comes, there's a sense of an ending, you know, um, of of an age, and then people do start to get interested. In, Again, in these kind of thinkers, and mm-hmm. I, I think uh, um, Vico, and uh, I know there's
0: more of an interest in someone like Spangler too. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, there's a lot of conversation about him right now. Well, well, I think the one thing, and not to get too far off track on Joyce, but I mean, I think the one thing that's that's happened in this last, honestly, just a couple of years is. Um, I think there's a growing disappointment or um, disillusionment with this disillusionment with science and technology. We sort of mm-hmm. the 90s was like we were going to we were going to do every, we were going to solve every conceivable problem with science and technology. And now it's like well it doesn't seem like that quite works. We can solve plenty of pro- we can solve a lot of problems with it, but it doesn't sort of answer the question ultimately somehow. Well this, this is something that the
3: left um, the new left the born out of the 1968 uh, uh, protests in France and in America um, used to f- firmly believe in. Postmodernism, modernism post-structuralism um, posited that there could no longer be a totality like modernism and that the attempt of creating a modernist totality led to the terror led Mm. to Robespierre and Hitler and the Holocaust. And, and, and they were very, um, uh, frightened of that kind of gesture toward creating a totality. Um, Mm. and that science, uh, could be perverted by authoritarians Mm. to create, um, Auschwitz. Um, Why, right? why, D- and why Data, not? Right and, and why right not? and right and that yeah. was and to uh, a critic like Francois Lyotard, that is the that's the logical extension of modernism. That's it's not the way I think about it, but to Lyotard, I mean, believes that. Uh, Jurgen Habermas to some degree uh, agrees with parts of this. That that this is the danger of modernism and a critique of. Uh, reason, rationality, science, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. These were these used to be core values, and it seems like, you know, in the recorso, it's all up for grabs.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in as much as Auschwitz and all the rest of it, too. World War One just completely opened a chasm to hell, yeah. and it was technology, and and then this old aristocratic order, this old order of the kingdoms of Europe, kind of having its last it's death throes i i don't i don't think we can possibly begin to imagine what it must have been like to have been born in 1890 in europe and to live through mm-hmm. the world war one and then world war II. i can't even imagine yeah uh, just, totally apocalyptic
2: apocalypse yeah, absolutely
0: we, we dwell world war in one, the right
2: yeah mm-hmm. world
0: war one yeah yeah
2: yeah yeah, yeah. Well, you guys did uh you know you've done a couple episodes on kafka kafka mm-hmm. is actually like he really has the, like, early 20th century pessimism, uh, you know, things mm-hmm. kind of dissolving into fragments and meaning, you mm-hmm. know, escaping behind layers and layers and layers of authority. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's kind of, that reminds me of how um, unique Joyce's version of modernism is in a way because of how almost completely untouched he is by that kind of post-World War One pessimism.
3: Mm-hmm, okay.
2: mm-hmm. I mean, I could be wrong, but I just I, I, I don't think that it is.
0: Yeah, I think, I think I, you're I, right. I think you're totally right, and I sometimes wonder to what extent is that an Irish perspective to have? Because right. I've read before, and, and I'm a person with, with some Irish lineage, um, I've read before that, that commonly what's thought of as being part of the Irish temperament is laughing in the face of death. And you kind of wonder if there is it, what Joyce is doing is a little bit of a different reaction to the same forces that maybe Kafka Kafka was, was seeing. And it's, it's just a sort of a, it's just to sort of cackle at it a little bit. It's just to poke fun at it a little bit have a laugh and, you know, have a dance and have a couple of drinks. Um, you know, you gotta also you got to do your, you your Joyce and, and spider dance. Spider dance. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, we,
3: we can't forget that you know there were many folks in Ireland in uh, 1916 mm-hmm. uh, who were perfectly I uh, um, thought the idea of a bunch of Englishmen being machine gunned down by Germans was fine. a really cool thing that it's right. fine it's like right. what's for you know what's for dinner
0: Do, the enemy of my enemy is my friend yeah yeah, right? man. Yeah. yeah yeah they
3: were a cult they saw themselves many as a colonized Hmm. people, Joyce said, we're, you know, we're colonized by two different powers, the, Mm -hmm. the church of Rome and Mm -hmm. by the British. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I think
0: that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. The
3: Irish, the Irish perspective, I mean, also like, just interject a thing on, on race. Since you bring up Um, the Irish, I also have the, have the Irish in me. All right, that's, um, that's, that's a yeah. plurality here, and yeah. uh, this group. So. I took uh, a lot of courses when I was doing my masters from a brilliant um, modernist scholar named Elizabeth Grubgeld, and she taught both Irish modernism and she taught Harlem Renaissance stuff. Oh, and she man. would bring in these uh, prop—what do you call them? Racist characters, propaganda uh, uh, photos, r- or uh, drawings—I should say. And um, the Irish were, in the 19th century, end of the 20th century, were caricatured as these simian creatures. I mean, they were they were drawn, the Irish were drawn as though they were apes and all this stuff, right? I mean, there were these, right. these really racist depictions. And yeah. she would point out how these are the same uh, horrific depictions that you see in Jim Crow, that you see in the U.S., like almost the same exact... Cartoonish, uh, caricaturish racism, right? And so mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that's happening in Harlem Renaissance is happening, and I mean that Langston Hughes and and Wendell, you know all these folks are doing these great writers is is happening with these folks on the
2: mm-hmm. on the other
3: side of the, the Atlantic and um, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. in, in Dublin and in, and in the Irish Renaissance, right? So uh, I think that that we see we see the Irish as white people now, but in the 19th mm-hmm. century, I mean, yeah, just in America, it yeah. was Irish need not apply. It was right. subhuman, you know, they were treated as subhuman. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, you know, Joyce takes race seriously in that respect. And that's, that's a piece of all this,
0: I think. Right. Well, and this is, I mean, part of why I correct, and correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, this is part of why he identified so much with the Jewish people, right? I think yeah. So, yeah, so. because it was it, it was, uh, it was uh, a a, a, cli- a group of people that had been sort of bi- oppressed since Bible times, and sure. right, and so and so his 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 people's more recent sort of oppression um, could kind of metaphorically fit in with that. And I think he 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 partially identified with 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 people of Jewish descent because he felt like he was in the same situation just on a different yep. you know different scrap of land basically <laughs> absolutely yeah. and that was kind of a common comparison among like
2: irish nationalist types as mm-hmm. well you hear it discussed in the um uh Aeolus, the chapter in uh, ulysses mm-hmm. where they're in the newspaper office um that that, that gets right. that parallel gets discussed uh quite a bit with parnell right they're talking yeah. about parnell being yeah trade and
0: all of that yeah yeah. Um, one thing I kind of wanted to touch on was I wanted to touch a little bit on this um, the centenary sort of celebrations, right? So it's kind of reading around, like what are, what is going on with the centenary um, celebrations, and, and there's some interesting, there's definitely some cool stuff happening. Um, there was a symposium on Sylvia um, Sylvia Beach who, you know, without Sylvia Beach, we wouldn't have Ulysses probably, or it would, you know, may, might be moldering on a on a shelf somewhere in an archive. Um, uh, and there's been, you know, a number of, you know, everybody everybody's publishing an article or an essay on Joyce right now, um, which is great. Um, but I was interested in the actual centenary sort of celebration, and I'm trying to find this thing by uh, Frank McCourt, um, hmm. Professor McCourt from, I'm reading from this BBC article. I'm trying to see where this uh, Professor McCourt, what's, where he's from exactly, because um, he had a kind of an interesting point. Um, uh, so he talks about Professor McCourt argues that Joyce has been turned into a consumer product, in many ways canceling out, airbrushing out the fact that so much of what he writes about Ireland is negative. I don't see anything wrong with people getting dressed up, says Professor McCourt, um, the author of an upcoming book. Here we go. The author of an upcoming book uh, called Consuming Joyce, A Hundred Years of Ulysses in Ireland. I don't see anything wrong with people getting dressed up, but let's not turn Joyce into something that's harmless. His book has that cutting edge. You have to find a balance. The book shouldn't be a vehicle for nostalgia of this magical Dublin of the past where everyone went around in a Wardian costume and enjoyed themselves. Joyce depicts a very different and quite a poor and inward-looking Dublin. Mm. Ireland is only learning how to cope with this legacy now. Uh, it, Ulysses, wasn't really in the public domain. It was in the domain of academics and elite. This Ulysses wasn't part of our canon, says Darina Gallagher, director of the James Joyce Center in Dublin. We, really, we didn't really know the characters in the novel. We're only getting to know it now, getting to explore it and find legacy in it, which is kind of fascinating. So That's it just, fa- that is
3: fascinating.
0: Yeah, so it makes it kind of makes me think. It's like I don't want to be like a gatekeeper, or, or I'm certainly not in a position to be a gatekeeper, or kind of a hipster about this and, and say that you know somebody who's out having a, having some drinks on on Bloomsday or on the Centenary is doesn't really you don't really get it, man. Like I don't want to take that <laughs> position, right? Um, <laughs> because, you know, people should have take any opportunity you can to have fun. I guess no doubt. Point. But at the same time, it's like you've got this erudite brilliant work of literature and in the centenary, does it get lost if you just turn it into a costume party? Right?
1: Yeah. There's a little bit of this. I feel this around uh, Fitzgerald and around Mm -hmm. Gatsby. I think, yeah, when you
0: play up, we're going to have a Gatsby party. I think it's just ridiculous. I'm from North
1: Dakota. I am Gatsby. (laughs) Mm -hmm. People
0: don't, people don't
1: know. (laughs) Can't even name the state that that character's from. Right. They may they maybe know that Fitz is from was from St. Paul. We mm-hmm. uh, uh, read Winter uh, Winter Dreams from Fitzgerald, and you want to talk about the the Catholicism in America and the Irish in America and and all of this and all of these stories. They again they turn it into a little costume party, which kind of takes the teeth out of it. I find it to be a little bit revolting. Uh, Gatsby's a story <laughs> of crime. Right. It's a right. crime
0: story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Aldous.
2: Yeah. None of the Gatsby parties include someone getting run over by a car, do they?
0: no they don't yeah yeah, <laughs> and you don't sacrifice your friends to the traffic yeah
1: right right <laughs> nobody talks about growing up in a sod house in the dakotas mm-hmm. and escaping mm-hmm. and moving east and what mm-hmm. what that what that move east means to joy or to uh to fitzgerald and all the rest yeah, we, yeah. we'll get on to F- that fitzgerald right. episode is going to be a banner
0: yeah. uh, i'm looking yeah. forward to that mm-hmm. but, yeah but but i think now like and i don't know i i'm not in dublin so i don't know what the sort of centenary celebrations look like if there are any um um, but but yeah, it does make me think about how sometimes this stuff gets um, commodified and in the process of getting commodified, gets kind of watered down. And then you end up losing the kind of the point of what that work was was created for, right? And it just becomes a, well, this, and I think there's a good point that McCord's making there. It's like, it becomes sort of like... It, you know maybe it's the book of it's the book of ireland and then you kind of get into it and and james joyce had a lot of really bad stuff to say about the 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 irish people and the irish mm-hmm. culture right mm-hmm. he had a certain amount mm-hmm. of pride at the same time but but you can't um you can't dismiss all of that and pretend it's it's this this sort of iconic representation of of that country in a celebratory way well, yeah i think well, the harshest book on irish is dubliners
2: yeah, yeah, go back and read Dubliners, and it's just mm. in, in a hardcore. subtle way. It's like mm. hardcore.
3: Yeah, yeah, it is brutal. It absolutely yeah. is brutal. Yeah. I think. I mean, I think Joyce's. I'm no. I'm no like. I'm not even a pop psychologist, but I mean, this is <laughs> abjection, right? Like this mm. is like classic ambivalence. You hate the thing and you love the thing. Mm-hmm. Like you hate the thing, but you are the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Joyce. I think he a more personal view of him, I think he really resented like down to his like, DNA that he was poor, that he was yeah. so poor and he grew yeah. up always fighting for every scrap. I mean, uh-huh. this is a man who, you know, once he had a family, he lived in threadbare tuxedos, like he aspired mm-hmm. to the life of an aristocrat in exactly the way that people who grow up in extreme poverty Mm-hmm. do like you know money meant some sort of like protection from the nightmare of that returning when like, you know Stephen says to his mother in the first chapter Ulysses history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake like <laughs> and Joyce tried to wake up from that his entire life
1: yeah yeah, yeah. would you yeah. rather be intelligent and poor cool or, ri- or rich and stupid
3: I mean I'm <laughs> like Napoleon give me a man who's lucky Give
2: me a man who's lucky, right? Yeah. I, you know, I it's a bit—it's a bit of a rhetorical question, but no yeah, comment. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think maybe in my up.
2: next life, I'm going to try rich and stupid. Rich and yeah, stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I've had enough. Give that of that a, like, go, a te- right? Yeah, yeah, really, Aldus. You were going to say? Um, well, you know, I, I think I read this on the on the last episode, but I, I want to read it again. Just a short mm-hmm. quote from um, yeah. from Portrait. Um, but that Stephen says that I think is really relevant to what we're talking about here. He says, when the soul of a man is born in this country, there are nets flung at it to hold it back from flight. You talk to me of nationality, language, religion. I shall try to fly by those nets.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And he, he did. Right. And how many people didn't. And then again, well, you, you could,
1: you could make the argument that America has the opposite problem. Hmm. right we're we're sort of thrust into this just cacophony mm. right so in a yeah because fact,
2: america was in a way a country founded on on that idea everybody's right. trying to fly past the nets and so it's just kind of yeah. like founded on chaos in a certain yeah. sense
0: yeah yeah right right there's a there's a there's a sort of a there's a you're right kevin it's the inverse it's like well you can do anything you want and then it's like well how did like okay any you anything? can be anybody you want well i guess i might
1: end up uh overdosing uh on fentanyl right, in the right. gutter then like what you know like yeah what? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's a
0: just, little it's a little you're confusing. on your it's own, own like, kid i yeah, can do yeah. wait i can do anything yeah, right, how do you then? Right. How do you how do you choose this next step? Right. I can
1: understand that reaction coming mm-hmm. from the crystallization and the sort of oppressiveness of the old world, though I understand that yeah, for sure. Yeah, That's a great quote, Aldous. Really
0: dramatic.
1: Can, <laughs> can, can I buttress the the quote from Portrait with oh, yeah.
3: a c- counter quote from Finnegan's Wake? Yeah, let's put these all in combat Okay, so together. this is from <laughs> a chapter that is sort of known. Colloquially among Wake scholars, of which I'm not one, but I've read I've read the book several times, um, and uh, the the chapter is called Shim the Penman. It's the seventh chapter of the first book, and in it, Joyce uh, sort of uh, travesties the suffering young Irish uh, intellectual artist. Um, type. Uh, shem is a, a it's not so much a character as is a principle in Finnegan's Wake. It is the the artist principle it is the weaker brother principle. It is the scribe principle and here it is. Shem was a sham and a low sham, and his lowness creeped out first via foodstuffs so low was he that he preferred Gibson's tea time salmon tinned as inexpensive as pleasing to the plumpest, row-heavy lax or the friskiest par or smolt troutlet that ever was gaffed between Lexlip and Island Bridge. And many was the time he repeated in his botulism that no jungle-grown pineapple ever smacked like the whoppers you shook out of Ananias's cans find later in Gladstone's corner house, England. None of your inch thick blue blooded balacalava fried at belief steaks or juice jelly legs of the grex's molten mutton or greasily grisly grunter's coupons or slice upon slab of luscious goose bosom with lump after load of plum pudding stuffing all a swim in a swamp of bog oak gravy for that greek and hearted Yude. Roast biff of old Zealand, he could not a touch it. See what happens when your stomatophage merman takes his fancy to our vegetarian swan? He even ran away with Hun's self and became a far soonerite, saying he would far sooner muddle through the hash of linnels in Europe than meddle with Erlen's split little pea. Whew.
0: <laughs> Dang, that's incredible. Now, for a second there, I forgot whether we were doing Joyce or we were still in last night's MF Doom episode. <laughs> so, <laughs> for like a sentence there. <laughs> no, that that is-
1: does sound like MF Doom. You could put that to a Doom beat and kind of try to do something with it. <laughs> really? But yeah,
0: just a, c- a couple more rhyming, a couple more, a little bit more rhymey, but the same general... Oh, that was incredible. That was incredible. Aaron, I, I could only uh, see Finnegan's wake makes me Finnegan's wake makes me feel stupid. I'm going to, I'm going to say it It makes me me feel kind of dumb. Um, (laughs) most books I can get something out of, you know, and Finnegan's wake is, is, is tricky. Um, but, oh, but that was a, that was a great passage. So how, where does that passage sit in the book? Roughly?
3: It is, uh, in my uh, new Penguin edition, is page 170, and that's out of 628 okay. pages. Okay, so, so you're it's talking Finnegan's like... Wake is in four books, right? And mm-hmm. so this is toward the end of the first book. I so see. the first kind of section, yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's so intense. That's so an
2: intense. amazing passage. Yeah, I'm going back to this. The whole description of Shem the Penman. Yeah. yeah. Worth that's looking cool. at. That's so cool. Yeah, that's so
0: cool.
3: That's an often, that's an oft anthologized uh, passage from The Wake because yeah. uh, even though, I mean, it presents difficulties, that's way more accessible even than the first few paragraphs that Aldous read on um, the podcast
0: earlier. Oh, from, from Finnegan's? From Finnegan's Wake, yeah, right? This yeah.
3: is, th- I mean, this Mostly obeys the rules of English grammar, syntax. Sure.
0: Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I didn't. I didn't hear a lot of um, neologisms in there. There were a couple, but there a was couple, Yeah. 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 Fewer.
3: Definitely
1: fewer. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: No. That's 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 really that's really interesting. Well, and so, I I know okay. Brad that
1: you had. Done a little research for this episode with McKenna. I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Did you want to bring that up? Because when earlier, when when the fellows were talking about time and time speeding up, that made me think of McKenna and his whole concept of novelty and time wave zero. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The McKenna episode we do is going to be so great. But yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Time
0: time time wave zero was actually the concept I was sort of grasping for talking about the vico vico and the and the cycles um, uh, of time. We'll talk a little bit more about the McKenna stuff in the After Dark because we're going to try to answer the question of can could you use Finnegan's Wake to reseed the universe uh, as James Joyce intended it. To, to be so we're going to talk a little bit about that after. and how do um, people get access to the after dark patreon.com slash art kevin is teaching me how to be a, yes. a, a promotional machine broadcasting yeah, yeah that's right patreon.com slash art of dark pod <laughs> um and yeah yeah every episode we've got 20 to 30 minutes bonus content it's usually it's usually worth it we go a little bit more off the cuff um I guess, kind of, maybe we sort of, kind of, start moving ourselves towards the end uh, of of the main episode. I feel like we've covered a lot of interesting territory. But Aaron, you said that you had listened to the previous uh, the previous Joyce episode, which you can listen to at artofdarkpod.com, where uh, we uh, and joined by Aldous Asterian did an in depth. Uh, investigation and biography and exploration of Joyce. Aaron was there anything in there that you felt like you had wished you could have been there to interrupt us? I I thought it was a great episode and I
3: there was nothing I disagreed with. I I thought yep yep yep. Um, The only thing I thought is the only thing I ever think with any discussion of Joyce um, which I mean this is every discussion of Joyce right where I think well, that's true, but also mm-hmm. X. Well, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's true, but also why? I mean, mm-hmm. it just keeps going. I mean the the if the writing of Finnegan's Wake wouldn't have ever stopped, why why wouldn't the reading of Finnegan's Wake and the and the discussion of Joyce ever stop, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I do think um, so in addition to Vico, Vico's a pillar, especially in Finnegan's Wake, but also um a treatise by a, uh, another Italian uh, heretic, this one burned at the stake named Giordano Bruno who wrote a really great another crazy book called Expulsion of a Triumphant Beast that mm. I think is, is another I don't want to say a key to understanding Joyce because I don't think those exist but it is um, it is a foundational text to getting at his obsessions
2: yeah yeah so the um you know we mentioned the viconian cycle um as being like one of the uh you know master ideas uh, adopted for finnegan's wake um the idea that he found in bruno of the unity of opposites is another extremely important one that he there. exactly there yeah. exactly um, and it should be noted that um, Joyce actually said that he didn't necessarily believe Vico's idea. Mm. It's just that it fueled his imagination,
0: his imagination so much
2: <laughs> right. that he
0: had to use it. And, and that makes sense so that's similar to his relationship. I would say that's similar to his relationship to Christianity in which once he could, once it resonated and made sense to him sort of metaphorically, he was on board with it. And, does that mean you actually believe, quote unquote, believe it or not? I don't know that that mattered all that much to Joyce. It was sort of a, it was like, did it, not that it was true, but did it rhyme kind of? Right? That's, like, that's a big yeah.
3: thing. He will, as he progresses uh, from portrait or from Dubliners uh, to the wake, mm-hmm. he will more and more sacrifice sense for sound.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think he did that sort of cosmologically as yeah. well, right? Is, is, eh, yep. is it true or not? Nothing's true. Everything's true. It's, does it, like, aesthetically appeal, um, which is some kind of truth?
3: It's a fundamentally Irish way of looking at things, too, right? Mm-hmm. And
0: people mm-hmm. uh, criticized,
3: I mean, the Elman biography used to be this. I mean, it was not only, at one time, the end-all, be-all of Joyce biographies. It was the end-all, be-all Of literary biographies, like Mm. this was the model, and then Mm -hmm. you kind of dig into some of his research now, and you realize, oh, Elman kind of bought into the Irish notion of fact, which is anything (laughs) anyone says at any time, (laughs) it's a fact, (laughs) (laughs) right? He went over to Dublin and he sniffed around, and all these people said, oh yeah, I know Jimmy, right? And then he started like unfolding this tale, and he's like, oh okay, yeah, must be true
0: yeah yeah well see but maybe that is exactly the perspective that is required to survive the the moment we're having now the 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 the, as we're approaching the recorso maybe that's what you actually need is sort of like you kind of believe and don't believe everything that you hear at the same time right it's all just it's it's all uh it's all what you kind of just take what you need, leave what you don't and and you kind of knowledge. Nobody actually knows anything. (laughs) You know, the interesting thing to me is that like the Joyce
3: of the novels and the short stories Mm -hmm. is a a highbrow artist interested in art for art's sake and art as religion and all that kind of stuff. You look at the letters and you're looking at a different man, you're looking at a man who believes in one thing. Mm -hmm. Do you have a few quid you could lend me? (laughs) Do you have any money I could borrow? I mean, the letters are a laundry list of people he wrote asking for money. He's a very practical guy. I need how many ever pounds to make it till this date? And I right. have this money coming from this person and this money coming from that person, I can repay you on this date. I mean, mm-hmm. it is, it is as fastidious as any accountant. Yeah. So yeah. that's a different, different side of, of old Jim that, that is not often spoken of. It's like, this is a guy who was obsessed with money and having en- having enough.
0: Yeah. And, and I think also gets lost in, in its part and personal, what you just said, he, once he started to get a little bit of, uh, recognition and acknowledgement. He was uh, ambitious in terms of getting his stuff out there, getting promoted, le- le- uh, legal battles over the pirated versions of Ulysses, and all of these things in a way that you wouldn't you wouldn't expect necessarily. He seems like a guy who's like, I'm just going to write my book, and I don't care what happens. But right, uh, right. But, but when you get down to it, it was very very concerned with what the reviews were saying. Very defensive Absolutely. when somebody criticized something he was saying. Oh um, gosh, you know, talking about suing. At one point, I think in the Elman biography, he considers suing somebody in Japan over <laughs> a pirated copy. and It's just like that's not gonna just just like let it go, man. You know. Um, so yeah, he was he was kind of concerned, uh, very much concerned at the 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 level of of uh, lucre for sure. Well, he didn't
3: have a straight gig after he was teaching, uh, you know, and yeah, after he was doing that teaching and he hated it, despised Mm -hmm. it. Right. Mm -hmm. After he got done with that, he never had a straight gig then. So he lived off, you know, basically patronage uh, until the 1930s when, when, you know, uh, Random House or, you know, Knopf, I should say, Mm -hmm. actually, gave him some freaking money
0: Yeah, for the yeah. U.S. edition. Yeah. And if, by the way, if anybody wants to do a recorso or return to the fine art of patronage, uh, <laughs> <laughs> patreon.com
1: slash art of dark pod. We, uh and do join our telegram too we're we're spending yeah. more time on there we're chatting we're getting feedback directly uh and we invite that that's easy yeah. go to artofdarkpod.com for all of these links we really appreciate it we are gonna pivot now into the after dark episode we're gonna do yeah. another 20 or 30 minutes with these gentlemen uh we do typically end every episode with a question are we ready for that one brad or i'm or ready for to... it let's see what uh well,
0: did we already do this in the previous joyce episode though did we uh, i don't, I don't recall
1: that's all right. Let's ask both the, both the fellows, uh, maybe starting with Aaron because he wasn't on the first episode. Um, Aaron, if Joyce was around now, what do you think he would be doing? I think he only knew how to write.
3: And I think he only knew how to write and drink and sing (laughs) and play piano, play guitar. And, um, I think he would be writing and doing those things. I think he would probably be more financially successful because he would have some of the larger artist grants. Um, I think he would totally exploit the Joyce industry that grew up after his death. Yeah. And he'd yeah. be making appearances. He'd be giving talks. And I think he would, I think he would have welcomed and flourished in the spotlight. Cause I, I think he really enjoyed the attention.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, mm. I, think he, I think you're right about that. Aldis, what do you think? Well, um, I do recall now that I actually did answer this one on the other one. So I'll just give my <laughs> slightly opposing view because I can totally see him, you know, f- like fitting into the role of like James Joyce and, and the industry around that and like playing, playing that up. And yeah, he was like total, the, the total writer. But I have a, there's a possibility that he had an interest in different media and, and mm-hmm. in new media. He started a theater in Dublin. You know, he starts writing about television and radio in Finnegan's Wake*. And part of me thinks that he could have been, you know, not just online, but like really online. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the what, kind of stuff that he's doing in Finnegan's Wake* and the experiments with language. You know, he po- might possibly could have even been like a programmer of some kind. It's true. I mean, it yeah. whatever he would have done, it would have been literary, but yeah. you know, mm. he could have even gone into these into these other areas. The only thing I think that would have held him back is the eyesight thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, did any of you guys, this is totally off topic, but this ma- makes me feel like this is what Joyce would have done. Did anybody read the comic uh, Transmetropolitan? Is no, with this? no, yeah. I've heard it's of it. It's great. It's great. So it's trans-metropolitan. It's basically this Hunter S. Thompson character type character who's living in the future, a sort of cyberpunk future. Goes by the name Spider Jerusalem. He's this journalist. But the scene that I've just thought of, and I think this is what Joyce would do, is he wakes up in the morning, dr- does a bunch of, you know, put a chemical concoction, he injects <laughs> some kind of performance enhancing drug into his eye, and then he sits down in front of like 30 screens and he just says, give me information and then it just like sort of blasts him with like you know dozens of channels of news and documentaries and live footage and all these things and i can imagine joyce kind of swimming swimming in that to some degree and he i think he would love the internet mind-boggling to imagine
2: Joyce with you know even just wikipedia much right, less you know right right everything
0: that's going on with yeah that. yeah the kind yeah, of hyperlinked mega text that he could come up with would be would be pretty fascinating yeah what if like <laughs>
3: joyce like grew up in our in our time and like mm-hmm. we we, we, t- we go back we steal this genius from the past we plan him yeah, as like he's... a teenager and he grows up and you think oh he's gonna write the great novel of this time and he just like podcast and has an only fans <laughs> and like
0: <laughs> <laughs> has a well, twitter you do. account this, yeah, is, yeah. this is this is i mean i think this is worth thinking about is like what does the internet do to a a brain like like joyce or somebody along those lines do can they can they do the thing that they you know, can they write Finnegan's Wake if right. they've got a laptop in front of them and they're checking Twitter every 20 well, minutes? Well, and the reality
1: yeah. is somebody may be doing it right now, but we might not even recognize it. There might mm-hmm. be some Twitter account that a hundred years from now, everybody says this was the, this was, this it. was the one yeah. we don't know. Do you know? So, mm-hmm. but maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's a little too optimistic. In any case, we're going to talk about Finnegan's wake on after dark and whether yep. or not you could reconstruct the entirety of the universe from Finnegan's wake. <laughs> um, I want to let, I want to let the fellows get their yes. uh, plugs in. So Aldis, where can people find you?
2: Uh, wherever you get podcasts, you can look up uh, The Forest of Symbols. I'm on Spotify. I do have a Patreon, uh, symbolpod.patreon.com. Um, um, so yeah, check that out. Aldous Asterion on Twitter. Yes. And Aaron, where can people find
1: you? Uh,
3: yeah, I'm uh, American Gwen, uh G-W-Y-N on Twitter and Instagram both. And um, uh, some Welsh uh, teenager has taken... Just Aaron Gwynn, so I'm American (laughs) Gwynn. That's how it is. American Gwynn.
0: American Gwynn is pretty based. I like (laughs) it. Thank you. Thank you. Stay with it, man. And
1: and Aaron, when do you know about the shortlist for that award? So the short, yeah, the shortlist for the award uh, comes out
3: in March, and then the award is uh, in April, and it is, uh, and Joyce would love this, it is 100,000 Irish
1: pounds. Nice. Hey, yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, we're, we're pulling for you uh, a very fine Thank novel. you. All guys, Thank children. you. Everybody should look yeah. it up. And if you want 30 more minutes of this, of this Blarney, artofdarkpod.com, <laughs> com slash artofdarkpod. That was Rejoice!
0: I think we're calling that episode. Does that work? That sounds. I like it. It's cheesy, but also awesome. I like it. It (laughs) insists (laughs) upon itself, Kevin. It is a little corny. You can't not call it rejoice. What are you going to do? I like it. Have to. Yeah. Good. All right. It gets the approval. (laughs) All right, fellows. We'll talk to you on the after dark. Okay.